Let's go to the Lord together in prayer uh, right now and continue in worship that way. Lord, we, uh, we come into your presence uh, this morning. We, we know that as believers, we are always in your presence. And yet there is uh, something special when we gather around your word, when we get to sing praises and worship to you uh, corporately, when we enter into this time where, we, where we're not thinking about um, what has come before or what comes after, but we're thinking about you. And we've set aside this time to worship you, and we've, we've worshipped you in song, and we've worshipped you in giving, and uh, we will worship you now with uh, uh, hearing your word proclaimed. Father, we submit to your word. We want to be those who are quick to hear your word and slow to speak over it in our minds and certainly slow to be angry. We want to submit to your word even this morning. Father, we are uh, remembering today, September 11th, 2001, 15 years ago, and yet it seems like yesterday to many of us, but it was a time when we saw how small and frail and vulnerable we really are, and yet at the same time, we believers came to see and rely upon and trust in your greatness, your sovereignty, your power, your authority, and your plan in ways that we had never done before. And so we remember both of those things this morning. We remember how frail we are. We remember that life is fleeting. We remember remember that death is certain for each one, though how it comes may be very uncertain. But we also remember you. We take comfort in knowing you. We take joy in knowing you. And though we don't understand how and why things happen as uh, destructive, as devastating, as tragic as 9-11, we we can't wrap our minds all the way around that. But we find comfort in knowing that that, uh, you are sovereign even over that. And so we trust in you, and we come to you this morning, and we remember that time, and we remember you, and we submit to you this morning. And Father, as we come to your word, as we're going through James and talking about what what you have for us there, I pray that you would open uh, our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what you have for us from your word. May we be responsive to the moving of your spirit. May we hear and may we do what you say to do in your word this morning. So we offer you this time, pray that you would be glorified and pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus name. Amen. So open to the book of James, if you would, James chapter two, and we're, we're spending really this semester working through that book and it's a relatively short book. And so we're only taking a semester (laughs) to get through it. We have taken longer on, on shorter books and, uh, but so we're going through the book of James and, and reading our chapter today, our half chapter, we're going to work on James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And, and I was reminded of a time when I lived in Chicago. And we lived in Chicago for like a decade. And that's where we had, that's where we had our first four children while we were there. And I worked with a guy named Kevin, and he was a good guy. And he looked a whole lot like a very famous comedian. A whole lot like him. I mean, it was, it was astonishing to all of us. Well, this comedian wrote a book and came through Chicago to do a book signing. 
And so Kevin thought it would be hilarious to go stand in line, buy a book, and have this comedian sign the book, and there they would be face-to-face, like looking in a mirror, right? Thought it would be just the funniest thing. And so he did. He went down to, to Borders or whatever it was, and he bought this book and stood in line for three hours and got this guy to sign it. And the guy just looked at him and said, what's your name? Signed it, gave it back to him, and moved on to the next guy. Totally didn't even see that they were like identical twins. And so the, the whole situation didn't quite work out the way Kevin uh, wanted it to, though it still made for a great story just because of, you know, how much of a failure it was. But, but uh, it's interesting when we, uh, when we think about meeting famous people or powerful people or rich people or something like that. I think there's a, you know, Kevin, Kevin wanted to, to have some kind of a connection with this guy. It was Chris Rock, by the way. Kevin looked just like Chris Rock, poor guy. And so, so they, uh, Kevin wanted to have this special connection. Like he thought it would be a really neat kind of thing. Like they could kind of high five each other and it'd be something that, that would be memorable. He wanted to kind of have a special place in Chris Rock's memory because they looked just alike and they had this moment, right? Ended up being a complete dud, right? But, but I think that, that kind of reveals something that maybe, maybe we all have within us a certain desire to, maybe meet someone like that or maybe maybe you do know someone like that and you have a desire to kind of make a special connection and maybe be memorable to the person or or maybe you know develop some some relationship or some friendship that kind of sparks up and who knows you become a you know a buddy with somebody who's famous i, I don't know but but we kind of have that within us and maybe it's a little secret dream and and uh, that's kind of what's brought out a little bit here in our passage today and so i i want you to imagine kind of to set ourselves up for this to be thinking about uh, what's going on in this passage and how we can kind of enter into it. Imagine that you came in this morning and you sat down and uh, you look over to one side of you and you recognize the person, right? Here at Parkside Bible Fellowship, but they're not from Parkside. You know them from the TV, right? And uh, and you recognize this person. You look at them and you start talking with them, right? Because you're hospitable, right? And so you start talking with this person and, and you find out that... Um, you know, they were, they were coming through town and their tour bus or whatever broke down here in Fallon. And so, um, you know, they had, while the tour bus is being fixed, they, you know, they, they decided to come to church, you know, and, and I mean, they, you know, recently kind of came to faith, you know, and, uh, you know, made a profession of faith and started going to church. It seems like, you know, God is doing things in, 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 in their lives. And, and so the Sunday churches, you know, the bus was broken down. So they came into church and sat beside you, right? Imagine that. Imagine the things that you'd be thinking. And this could be your own, you know, like some of us think, you know, certain kinds of people are important and, and that we would like to meet. Others, it's completely different, right? But just imagine this is someone you would really like to get to know. Maybe very powerful, maybe very rich, maybe uh, maybe just famous. I don't know, whatever, whatever you, you know, whichever kind of appeals to you. So that's on the one side. Then you, you look over to the other side and you see and you sort of smell this person sitting on the other side of you who was driving through town and and their you know their car ran out of gas or was about to run out of gas and and kind of got stranded in Fallon or maybe maybe new to Fallon maybe just had nowhere else to go and so ended up in Fallon and uh and it's Sunday morning and um you know this person kind of looks back you know at his life and sees that you know the Lord has been um kind of drawing him back to himself he grew up in church and but there are some areas of his life where he's definitely not been walking with God. And maybe, maybe this is the opportunity God is using, he thinks, to bring him back to himself, right? And so you've got this smelly person who slept in their car last night in the clothes they're wearing sitting on one side. And you've got, you know, the famous person or the powerful person or the rich person or the 
celebrity or whatever on the other side. Look down in your heart and see which one you'd be tempted to invite to lunch or to invite to your house. You know, come on over. We've got, uh, you know, we've got stew happening. Which one would you invite? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but it's interesting to think about where our natural tendencies lie. Which direction would we go? Which one would we give preference to? Because I've met quite a few people who slept in their car last night in the clothes they're wearing and don't smell so good. I've met quite a few people who've been stranded in Fallon or they came to Fallon. They don't know why. Right. And they have some kind of a church background and seems like the Lord's trying to bring him back to himself and and all of those. I've met quite a few of those people. Right. I've never met this person. And that's much more interesting to me. Right. And so maybe that's the case for you. Maybe it's not. And of course, that situation is absurd. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look at which one of those we'd probably be more willing to invest in. I'm thinking we might be more willing to invest in this cool person versus the smelly person on the other side, right? And so that brings us to our passage today. And so you've opened up to James uh, chapter 2. If you're using, by the way, the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1011, easy to remember. And if you don't have a Bible, that Pew Bible is yours. Just go ahead and take it, right? So um, so that's on page 1011, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not been made distinctions amongst yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, You've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to look at our passage today. We see right off the bat, Christians must not show partiality. And by the way, this is the main point of the whole passage. He starts off with the main point, so you can underline that, or you can highlight that, or you can put a star by it, or whatever. That's the main point of these next 13 verses is right there. Christians must not show partiality. He says, first of all, because Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus himself is the Lord of glory. That that first verse there, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's a very difficult 
construction. The grammar is very difficult. It's kind of smoothed out in uh, in your English version, but in the Greek, it's 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 rough. And the reason it's rough is because of glory is hanging out there in a way that really sticks out like a sore thumb. It would be very normal to hear, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very simple, very plain, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But of glory is tacked onto the end in a way that draws attention to it. It's underlined in red, it's kind of bold, because he's trying to emphasize to us Jesus being the Lord of glory, that Jesus is the glorious one. He wants to lay that as the foundation, as the baseline, so that we can then think about other people's glory. What kind of glory do other people have in comparison to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Lord of glory himself? And so he's laying the baseline there so that we can kind of recalibrate when we think someone is glorious. And we don't really use that word in that sense all that much anymore. But, you know, when we're when we're kind of trying to identify who is the uppermost in our in our estimation, who has glory, well, Let's just rethink that Jesus has all of the glory. So how much does this person on your left or on your right compare in their glory to Jesus Christ? I'm not saying compare the person on your left right now versus the person on your right right now. That would lead to bad conversations. But the person that you're thinking is is glorious in comparison to Jesus. Are they glorious? Not in the least. And so when we think in those terms, it kind of puts everybody on a level playing field and changes things, right? And so he says right here, show no partiality because Jesus is the ultimate glorious one. You want to think about glory? He's the ultimate glorious one. Second of all, he says, by doing so, by making those kind of distinctions, we're making improper distinctions. We've decided amongst ourselves, this guy is better than that guy, or this class is better than that class, or I'd rather be with this than this, or whatever. We've made some sort of distinction that we're not supposed to do. First of all, I, I want us to think about who these two people are. In the two people in the passage, not the two people in our imagination that I, that I put before us. These two people in the passage, the guy comes in, he's dressed in great clothes, he's wearing a gold ring, right? Mr. Fancy Pants, right? He comes in, and then you've got the other guy who's in shabby clothing, okay? They're probably both believers. The reason I say that is because churches at this time didn't advertise in the newspaper. People didn't just show up in their assembly. They didn't have a big church building. They, like, had to wander, you know, through your backyard into your kitchen kind of thing to get to church, and people don't just wander into that. So they were probably a believer, probably a newish believer, but someone who's, who's a Christian, and they came in. So it's not like we're looking at two random strangers that walked in off the street. These are Christians that we're talking about. They're new to your congregation. You don't, you don't know them personally, but they wouldn't be there if they weren't believers in this kind of a context. And so, so these guys walking in are probably Christians. And so if you think about that, it's bad enough for believers to make distinctions amongst unbelievers this guy is better than that guy or or to make those kind of distinctions with unbelievers and it's doubly bad for christians to do that with christians i don't like your class of christian i'd rather be with this class of christian that's terrible every one of us like i said is on an even playing field if we think we are all sons of adam we're all sons of adam right we we were born in sin 
We have that sin nature deep down. We all inherently sin. We all prefer to sin. That's our nature. That's what we were born with. We're children of Adam. So we're all sinners before God. We're all therefore equally deserving of judgment and wrath from God. But as Christians, because of God's saving work in Christ, He has made us to be acceptable in His sight. He has declared us to be acceptable in His sight because of what He's done on the cross. That He would take that penalty of sin and He would pay it and He would instead give us forgiveness, give us righteousness. And so this status, if you want to call it that, that we have before God, where does that come from? It's a gift from God. And so talk about an even playing field. We only have the good things that we have. We only have the good standing before God that we as Christians have because he gave it to us. So how can I look at you and lord it over you in some way? How can I look down upon this Christian versus that Christian when our status as Christians was given to us by God anyway? The Lord gives that status to all Christians regardless of their ethnicity, of their religious background, of their social status, of their economic status, of their any other status. We're on an even playing field. And beyond that, if we look to Galatians 3.28, we remember that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. Standing before God, you don't have a better standing if you're a Jew and a believer before God than if you're a Gentile and a believer before God. You don't have a better standing before God if you are a Christian man versus a Christian woman. We have equal standing before God because of what He's done. And so for us as Christians to honor some types of Christians over others is to make distinctions that Jesus would hate. So He calls those improper distinctions. And James says, thirdly, that we do this because of evil motives. We do this because of evil motives. The one who gives special attention to the rich man while degrading and judging the poor man is hoping somehow to benefit from the rich man's favor. In some way, maybe it's not, you know, a financial gift of enormous quantities or whatever, but there's some desire for favor, trying to make some sort of special connection or something. Showing preference stems from an evil motive. Reminds me of the mother of James and John. Remember that story back in the Gospels? It's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. The apostle, uh, the, the, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and asks him if he would reserve two seats for her two sons in the kingdom. Remember? Jesus, just, just two seats, all I ask, just two seats, you know, the one on your right and the one on your left. The two most important seats besides your own in the kingdom. Would you reserve those for my sons? Would you do that? Simple request, but here's what Jesus said. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so to give preferential treatment to the rich or the powerful versus the poor and the weak is to flip Jesus' instruction exactly on its head. We become judges with evil motives. So Christians must not show partiality. 
as though the glory of the rich and powerful could in any way compare with the glory of Jesus. Can't do it. Giving preferential treatment to the powerful means to make improper distinctions among ourselves, and it comes from an evil and sinful motivation that's within us. He says more than that. He goes on in in, uh, verses 5 through 7. He says partiality to the rich contradicts God and contradicts reason. Contradicts God and contradicts reason. First of all, God honors the poor, yet you dishonor them. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Seems like God is showing honor. Seems like God is lifting them up. God is doing a work on their behalf. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how often you think about this, but the Bible has a whole lot to say about the poor. A whole lot to say. More than I could fit in if I just read the verses between now and the end of the sermon. Has a whole lot to say about the poor. For example, in Luke chapter 4, at the start of Jesus' ministry... And as a way of declaring who he was and what his ministry was going to be about, remember he goes into the synagogue and the scroll is rolled open. He reads a passage from Isaiah 61 that's about God's kingdom coming to earth. You remember that? This is what he says. Listen closely. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The very start of Jesus' ministry, he comes out and says, I have been sent here to proclaim the good news to the poor. He says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When I think about the Beatitudes, I normally think of the Matthew Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke records it differently. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or listen to this from Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God flips things over, doesn't he? He flips things over. And James says here, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? I said in the, in the introduction that we spent a decade or so in Chicago and and we had our first four children there. And uh, during most, the vast majority of that time, I was a college student. I was either in, in undergrad or grad school. And during that time, as soon as we started having children, uh, Steph stayed home. And so she was a stay-at-home mom. I was a full-time student and worked when I could. And we had, you know, diapers to put on babies, you know. That, that was the hope, anyway, was that we would have diapers because it doesn't go well if you don't, right? So we had, I mean, it was tough. Things were tough. I worked as much as I could, but there wasn't very much. And we lived in Chicago, by the way, so it's not a cheap place to live. Times were tight. We didn't have a lot of money. And, uh, and so when we look back at that time, there are a lot of things we are so glad are past <laughs> from that time. But one thing that we benefited from in enormous ways is that we got to see God be faithful. Because we had nowhere else to turn 
to pay the bills. And the Lord would meet us there. We would cry out to him and ask him, and he would meet us through all different kinds of means. Very often, by the way, through the body of Christ. But we learned that when we were in need, we would cry out to God and he would show himself faithful. And what did that do to our trust? It increased our trust so that the next time when we were in need, Lord, you provided last time. We, we cry out to you and we need you, Lord. And so we were those poor people, relatively speaking, who were in need. And because of that time, we grew rich in faith in ways that we wouldn't have had we always been able to meet our own financial needs. So that was a blessed time. The Lord worked in our lives and he grew us and he matured us in ways that, that uh, have benefited us ever since, in ways that he, he, he wouldn't have in the same way had we been able to, to meet all of our own needs. He does that in the lives of the poor. And he does that on purpose in the lives of the poor, as we've just looked at. He's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And really, if you think about it, the poor don't have any other realistic hope than in the kingdom itself. They're not going to inherit this world in a way that we would like to think, typically. But they will inherit the kingdom of God. And so they put their hope there. And so God works in unique ways in that kind of a situation. God honors the poor, but when we show preference to the rich man over the poor man, we dishonor those poor. Secondly, the rich mistreat you, yet you exalt them. They mistreat you, and yet you exalt them. So remember who this is being written by. This is James, right? He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is not the Apostle James. This is the brother of Jesus. And as Mike pointed out again in Sunday school today, I love that he doesn't say, yeah, I'm James, the brother of Jesus, and that's what gives me the authority to write this letter to you, so listen up. He says, no, I'm James. I'm a servant of God and of Jesus. I'm his servant. And so that James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, had some interesting experiences that, uh, that he witnessed. If you think back to the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 tells the story of the fallout that happened to Peter and John when they had gone and preached at Solomon's portico in the temple, right? They had gone and preached and amazing. There was a miracle and crowds grew and all kinds of stuff. And what ends up happening to uh, Peter and John? They get arrested and they get hauled before the authorities. Do you remember who it was by? Priests, temple authorities, Sadducees. These, these were the rich people. They were extremely rich and they were in positions of power in the whole religious world. They were, they were the influential ones. They were the ones with the power and the political connections and it was their temple. And here Peter and James or Peter and John show up and they're preaching and they get in trouble with that, right? And so it's those rich people who drag them into prison, drag them into jail and before the courts, right? Remember God delivers them. It's, it's a powerful thing. But James 2 and verse 6 says, Are not the rich ones who oppress you? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And so when he says that, he's not just speaking generally. He's saying, remember in Acts chapter 4? Remember, remember when that happened? We were there. I was there. You were there. And that's the class of people who are doing that. That's, that's who did that, Those the rich people. And so this rich man that comes into the assembly, remember, he's a believer, 
He's wearing the gold, and all, you know, he's, he's dressed nice and all that kind of stuff. But he represents that class of people who had so horribly mistreated everyone else, all of the poor. And so to give such a person the best seat and preferential treatment over the poor, to exalt such a person makes no sense. It shows a desperation and it shows impure motives behind what they're doing. But it gets worse. These rich dishonor God and yet you honor them. Dishonor God and yet you honor them. Luke's story in Acts chapter 4 makes very clear this class of people, what they typically thought of Jesus. He was a stumbling block to them. He was offensive to them. He, he represented an attack, an affront, uh, uh, a risk to their political and religious authority. Jesus himself did that. And so the political authorities, if you remember thinking through the Gospels, very often Jesus was at odds with the political authorities because they liked the status quo, you know, with them being in power, them calling the shots and with them having the money and all the say. And Jesus came along and he said, that's not the way God wants it. And so it was an attack. It was a threat to their power and to their position. And so what did they say about Jesus? All manner of terrible things, blasphemous things. Accusing him of being possessed of the devil. Accusing him of, of, of being uh, himself impure and a sinner and of impure background. They were offensive. They dishonored God. They were blasphemous. And yet, and yet in this scenario, such a person from such a class walks in. Now this is a believer. But someone from that class walks in and you're going to honor that person in a special way and show dishonor to the poor guy? doesn't make any sense. You're honoring, in a sense, those who have dishonored God. And so he continues on in the last paragraph there, verses 8 through 13, and he says, instead, instead of showing partiality like this, instead, fulfill the royal law. Fulfill the royal law. Which, of course, means love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 8 there. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And so he's referring back to something that we're familiar with. We're probably most familiar with it because Jesus said it was the second greatest commandment, right? Someone came up to Jesus and asked him, uh, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, trying to trip him up or whatever. And, and uh, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus boils down the whole law, when he boils down all of the expectations from God upon man, the second greatest commandment is this one right here. And so usually when we read this, we flash back to Jesus saying that. But did you know Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament? Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 19 says this. I'm going to read several verses from that passage here because it kind of gives you the context, right, of where that comes from. Reading from Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. So remember, this is the law being given through Moses to the people of Israel way back after they have left Egypt, but they have not yet entered the land of Canaan. 
They've not yet entered the promised land. So they're in the desert. They're receiving the law from God. They're just about to set up their own nation, set up their, their, their own land with their own people in their own place, right? So how are we going to set this up? What's the foundation going to be? What's our constitution in a sense? So that's what's being set up here. So flashing back to that time, this is the people of Israel. This is, you know, this is going to be, uh, over a thousand years before Jesus is speaking probably 1,500 years before Jesus is speaking or somewhere in there. And this is what he says. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus is quoting directly from Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 19 when he says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And here we have James quoting from there also. So Jesus called this the second greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So think about that for a second, because I'm pretty good at loving myself. Right. I'm pretty good at that. I, I, I make sure all of my needs are met. Right. I'm not likely to go hungry. I'm going to meet my own needs. And not only do I meet my own needs, I also meet a lot of my wants. Frankly, I'm pretty good at taking care of myself. And so when when the Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, that's a pretty high standard because I love myself pretty well and I'm not alone. And that's the way we're to take care of our neighbor. If we show partiality to the rich and powerful and brush aside the needy among us, we break the second greatest commandment, what James here calls the royal commandment or the royal law. We're seeking our own needs and desires rather than seeking to meet the needs and even desires of needy Christians around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that very often involves showing mercy to needy Christians. Showing mercy to needy Christians. Again, back in Luke, Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus said to a ruler of the Pharisees who had invited Jesus into his home for dinner. And Jesus responded to him and said this, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Have you ever noticed how big Jesus was on serving other people? It was pretty important to him, right? He talked about it all the time. And it was certainly a pattern that he gave when he said he gave himself as a ransom for many. He was big into serving other people. And he says here, not so that we can get certain things out of it, not so that we can get repaid. It's real easy for me to do something for you if I know next week you're going to do the same thing for me. That's like not even really serving. That's just, that's just a trade that we have. 
Jesus speaks very highly of serving other people. And next week, by the way, when we finish James chapter 2, we're going to move on to the bottom portion of that. A very familiar passage that talks about uh, the relationship between faith and works and faith without works is dead. That whole passage, we're going to talk about that next week. So by the way, if you have questions, make sure you get here. If you have other friends who have tried to uh, interpret that in some odd way, bring them with you. Okay, we're going to talk about what that passage means. But it's very interesting that in that passage, the tests that he uses on whether your faith is genuine by showing these particular kinds of works is how you treat needy Christians. That's very interesting. You know, being a relatively theological person, I tend to think about the theology of that passage of the the bottom half of chapter 2. And it wasn't until I started reading James in preparation for our preaching here that it really struck me that the example that James gives to test whether you have works that line up with your faith is how you treat needy Christians. Very interesting. So it's pretty high on James's list, too. It's a litmus test for our faith. So showing mercy to needy Christians is part of what it means to fulfill the royal law. And he finishes up by saying, you will be held to a standard of mercy. A standard of mercy. Finishing up in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's an elevation of mercy that maybe we don't hear a lot. It triumphs over judgment. That reminds me of a passage that uh, Jesus, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 25, and you're familiar with this passage. Why don't you turn in your Bibles, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. This is a big passage, and you've heard it before. Matthew chapter 25, 31 through the end of the chapter. If you're in the Pew Bible, that's page 831. Talking about the relationship between mercy and judgment. Because that's a provocative statement James makes. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus, speaking about the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, says this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. Excuse me, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or 
thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire for the prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a powerful passage. It's a very powerful passage. And it raises some questions in our minds about judgment. What does judgment look like? What's judgment based upon? Those are tough questions. I want to answer them this way. Some of you thought I skipped over verses 10 and 11 in James chapter 2. You thought I forgot it. I was going to skip right on by it. I want to end with it. Verses 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law. I'm back in James chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The law is a unity. It is held together. And so these people that James is writing to were apparently thinking, hey, I, uh, you know, I, I, I do all things well. I'm obedient in all kinds of ways. And I'm really, I love my friends as myself. And James says, it doesn't say that. It says love your neighbor as yourself. And that really focuses largely on the needy Christians among you. Do you love them as yourself? Or do you love this new buddy that just came into church and wearing the gold ring and the fancy clothes? You love your neighbor, if it's that guy, as yourself, right? And he's saying no. He said not to love the needy Christians among you, not to show mercy to them, not to take care of them, is to break the entire law. You don't, you don't get to pass with a 95%. When you break it, you've broken all of it because it's the same God who gives the whole law. The same God who said, do not murder, also said, do not commit adultery. So if you offend him by committing murder, do you think he's going to be happy that you didn't commit adultery? Is he not going to be offended because you didn't commit adultery? No, he's offended because you committed murder, is the example James gives, right? To break one part of it is to be guilty and to have offended God in all of it. And so that puts us all in a very difficult spot because none of us has kept the law perfectly ever. No one besides Jesus himself has done that. And so we tend to think I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a pretty good person. That's not the way God judges. God judges based upon perfection. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. How do you match up to that? Not so good. None of us does. We're not perfect before God. 
we find ourselves guilty of at least one point. And by the way, no one's ever been guilty of just one point. But we're guilty at least at one point. And the way God reasons about it, we have offended Him. We have broken the whole thing. We've shattered the whole thing. Doing evangelism, I used to give the example of, you know, making like a four-egg omelet, right? You crack the first three eggs, put them in there, great. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're whipping it up and you put the, the third, crack the fourth one, throw it in there and it's rotten. Well, that's no big deal, right? You just eat the good part, right? That's not the way that works. You just blew the whole omelet. You're going to throw the whole thing out and you're going to air out your kitchen and everything else, right? That's the way it is with us breaking God's law with our guilt before God. We are guilty of all of it. We're utterly and completely guilty of all of it. And the only hope we have, the only hope that we have is Jesus himself. The only one, by the way, who kept all of it. And the only one who was able to pay a penalty for more than one person because he is infinite God himself. And so he steps in to take the penalty that you deserve to pay that punishment that you and I deserve. And through that exchange that happens when he takes my guilt and gives me his righteousness, I receive forgiveness of sins and his perfect track record. That's how I can have a right standing before God. But it goes farther than that. That's not what James is talking about here. James is talking about the result of that in our lives. When God makes us a new person in Christ, we have become new creations. We begin to walk in obedience to God. Not because we white-knuckle it, we bear down, and we're just going to make it happen. But because we are truthfully living out our new nature of being Christians. And it changes the way we behave. It changes what we do. And a big, big element of what it changes is the way we look at God's other children. Christians, how do we treat Christians? True salvation will show itself in us showing mercy to other Christians, particularly those in need. They can't take care of themselves. They can't fend for themselves. They've got no one else to look out for them. God has given us to look out for them. It will show itself. New life in Christ will show itself that way, and that's what he's talking about here. And so I have a question for us. How often do you pursue relationships with people so that you can get something from them, so that you can benefit? It might be subtle benefit. It might be just emotional fulfillment. You're not, you know, probably trying to get some, you know, you're not trying to get the president's ear or something like that. But some kind, you're trying to benefit in some way from, from uh, friendships. We often do that. I go into friendships thinking about me. I like this person. I am interested in what this person is interested in. I'm interested in what this person can teach me, can give me, can show me, can do for me. How often do we go into relationships, specifically seeking out relationships with needy Christians, financial need, physical need, other need, specifically seeking out needy Christians so that we can fill their needs? How often do we do that? Some of you do that. Some of you do that. And it is powerful it is a powerful picture of god's working in the body of christ when you do that and so that's my desire for us is that we would become a body that seeks to take care of our needs looking to fill the needs of one another i'm not i'm not excluding evangelism i'm not any of that stuff i'm talking about how we as the body of christ take care of one another's needs james would have us do it jesus would have us do it God, through Moses, told us to do it. Mercy, mercy to needy Christians. 
So have you sought out a needy Christian and offered them help unsolicited? That's powerful. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. My desire is that we would become that kind of a loving community that people would look and see, man, those people take care of each other. Man, those people love each other. Even in practical, very practical ways, they love each other. I want to be a part of that. That's what Jesus said. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, are, I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged by this. I'm selfish. I take care of myself. I don't often seek out others knowing they have needs with the specific purpose of filling that need. I don't often do that, but I need to. And I certainly don't want to be one who shows preference for a person in a position of power or wealth or influence or coolness and cast off, move aside a, a poor Christian, a Christian that's not as interesting to me, a Christian that's going to cost me something instead of gain me something. I, I, don't, I don't want to be like that. And so I pray that you'd forgive me for the times I have, for the ways I have, and I pray that you would work in our hearts here that we would seek to honor you and to honor the needy Christians among us. I pray that we would be exemplified, that we would be known by our love for one another. Lord, I thank you most of all for the way you have loved us and the mercy that you have shown us in sending Jesus for us. And if we will turn to him, if we will trust in him, if we will look to him as our only means of salvation, our only savior, the only way that we can be made a friend of God instead of an enemy of God, if we will do that, then then we will receive his righteousness and we will have that standing before God and, and we will have forgiveness of our sins and Jesus takes that punishment for us. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that you made me your own son. I did not deserve it and still don't. And so I give you glory. Lord, I pray uh, for each of us the rest of our day as we remember our nation and the giant wound uh, that, that, that uh, we have received 15 years ago today. Help us as Christians know how to minister to a wounded nation, a scarred nation. Help us to minister to the people around us and show the love of Christ and share the love of Christ and share the gospel of salvation in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.